I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 16, if you have your copy of the Scripture with you. If you do not, we'll display the words on the screen behind me in a moment as we read. And while you're turning, let me set the stage for you or provide a little bit of roadmap for uh, where we're going this week and in the coming weeks as we approach Easter. You'll notice that today as we read John 16, starting at verse 16, that we've actually skipped a passage uh, that's intentional, and we will come back to it later. We're going to skip another one next week as well at the beginning of John 17. And the reason for that is because we have the rare opportunity as we go through this gospel and so closely lined up with the calendar for Easter that if we skip a couple passages right now and come back to them after the fact that we can talk about in sequence the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on Easter weekend. Speaking of Easter, uh, we're four or five weeks away. And I really want to encourage you this year, uh, in a year where so many people uh, have asked big questions about life, death, mortality, God, how all these things fit together, there is a tremendous opportunity right now for each and every one of you to have conversations with people about Jesus. And Easter's a great time to do that. Maybe this year will be the year where you invite somebody to church on Easter weekend. Or maybe it's the year where you invite somebody to your house on Easter Sunday for Easter dinner that you would extend your family beyond your blood relatives and encourage others uh, around that time. I can tell you over the past number of years I've been able to do that myself and have conversations on Easter that you can't have at other times of the year. Uh, And the Lord has used that to even bring people to faith in Christ And so I encourage you to exercise courage. Just takes a step of courage. It doesn't have to be confrontational. It can be loving to talk to people about the Lord this Easter. So with that, let's turn our attention to John 16, starting at verse 16. This is what it says. A little while longer and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to my Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full." I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I 
Do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Part of my job as your pastor is to teach you the things about God that He reveals to us in His Word. I want you to know, to know something, to know about the works of God. And not just to know about the works of God, but to actually know God Himself. And it's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible that God makes himself known to us. He doesn't have to do that. He needs nothing from us. He is completely full in his being, and yet he reveals himself to us. That's why Jesus came, to show us the Father. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures as the Word of God, so that we can know God. But knowledge about God and relationship with God are not the only goals of God's revelation. Because what God gives you through the accomplishment of Jesus is joy. And this joy is something that is given to you. It's a gift from God to you for you to have in your life. And it's also something at the very same time that you need to pursue and you need to fight for. This joy that Jesus procures for you. It's the best possible disposition for your life and it is a promise for you that is eternal. That because of the work of Jesus, you can have joy in this life and for all eternity. And this is what Jesus is sharing with his disciples in these final hours. Consider with me, just as we read a moment ago these verses in John 16, how joy is mentioned. In verse 20, Jesus says to them, your sorrow will turn to joy. In verse 21, there is joy when a mother brings a child into this world even though the birthing process is painful. Verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. And verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now friends, that's an astounding promise. In Jesus, your joy will be full and no one can ever, ever, ever take it away. 
I wonder if you feel that way as you follow him today. Jesus is hours away from the cross. His farewell discourse of the end of John 13 through John 17 functions as the parting words that he's giving to his disciples, the things that he wants to make sure that they know about him and how his work applies to them. And he's got two themes that continue to resound in the Gospel of John and in this discourse. The themes are glory and love. That Jesus, as the Son of God, will be glorified. He will display his glory and that in this display of glory, his love to them will be made manifest in many different ways. And one of the ways that glory and love come together is in the joy of the Christian. Glory meets love and it results in joy for you. Follow the logic with me. The glory that Jesus will have is expressed supremely in his death and burial and resurrection. He will accomplish what no one else can do. He could perfectly pay for the penalty of sin and he could restore people to God. His love is expressed not only in his sacrifice, but also in his reuniting us to God. That we would enjoy God forever and experience the benefits of his nearness right now in this life and in eternity. And so when this happens, when the glory of Jesus is revealed on the cross and in his resurrection, and the love of Jesus for you is displayed in reuniting you to God, something that nobody else could do, the result for you is true and lasting joy. And that's what he leaves them with in this passage. And it begins in verse 16 as they are debating what Jesus means by a little while longer you're not going to see me and then a little while after that you're going to see me and the words are a little confusing and frustrating to read and it's of course an allusion again to his death and to his resurrection. And you might be thinking to yourself, I can't believe the disciples haven't got it yet (laughs) because he's been alluding to this again and again and yet it seems like they still don't get it. And yet at the very same time, lest we fall into the trap of our own pride, you know, (laughs) you know that when you're in the middle of a situation that is difficult and confusing and hard to understand, that it's hard, (laughs) isn't it? to see the forest from the trees sometimes. And Jesus has just told them a moment ago that the world is going to hate them. And now he's telling them, but you're going to have a lot of joy in that. And they're thinking to themselves, sorrow, joy, hatred, gain. How do all of these things fit together? And so Jesus says to them that he knows that This situation is confusing that upon his death, sorrow and weeping will be their reality. In verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The weeping and the sorrow that Jesus is referring to is undoubtedly what will happen upon his death. This will be the moment when the disciples will feel like everything they believed in has been lost. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They've left their jobs behind. They've followed him for three years. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've embraced him as their own, as their savior. They've followed him to their days. They love him and they've given everything to do so. And as he will hang on the cross, they will feel like everything that they believed in will be lost. Everything they hoped for will be lost. Jesus hanging on the cross, it would feel to them like the world has won and that the schemes against Jesus and against his followers have been victorious. Sorrow and weeping is what happens when you feel that way. Friends, this is something that we can relate to. Because many of us, like the disciples, have completely invested ourselves in following Jesus. We believe him and our lives are reflecting that belief. We love him. We find our hope in him and we're desperately trying to be faithful to him. And we cling to his promises for ourselves and we cling to his promises for our families. And yet, there are moments in life when it feels like the world has won. Where the victory of Jesus has accomplished nothing for me. When everything that we've believed in and everything that we hoped for feels like it's lost. When our kids make a terrible mistake and it's indicative that they're not following the Lord as they go through college. When a close loved one dies prematurely in our eyes and they haven't trusted Christ. When a leader that we look up to has a moral failure and it calls into question all of the influence, all the good things that has happened in that person's life and how it's been applied to me. And we say, God, I've trusted you. God, I've followed you. God, I love you. How could this possibly happen? It feels like what I've trusted in and hoped for is lost. Surely the disciples feel this way as they watch the Savior hanging on the cross in agony. But Jesus promises that their weeping will turn to joy. And he likens it to a mother giving birth to a child. The anguish is temporary. The joy that follows is what will last. And the illustration shows of the mother giving birth not just the conversion of sorrow to joy, but maybe even something more profound. Because you see in childbirth that without the anguish, (laughs) there will never be joy. And the same is true for the follower of Jesus. 
Without the sorrow and the doubt and the weeping as Jesus heads to the cross, there will never be the joy of resurrection, of victory, of forgiveness. That joy would not be possible for them. And the same is true for you, actually, in a different kind of way. Without the recognition and sorrow and weeping over the sin in your life, the true and lasting joy of forgiveness is not possible for you. But when you mourn that you've grieved a holy God, a God who's loved you, a God who's given you everything, when you look upon your own sin and you realize that because of that sin, there's no way to approach him, there's no way to be near to him, there's no way to fully experience his love or his grace. When you look upon your sin and you see with great sorrow that it was that sin that put Jesus on the cross in the first place, when you do that, then in humble and surrendered posture, You can receive grace and forgiveness that he gives through faith. You can receive joy in a life with God. But friends, there are a lot of people today that want to experience the benefits of God and even claim the banner of Jesus without ever going through the sorrow and anguish of repentance of sin. And if you never know what you're saved from, (laughs) how can you have joy in what you're saved to? Jesus secures for us joy. And so don't be a gloomy Christian when joy is your inheritance. German theologian Helmut Thielicke once said, the glum and sour faces of many Christians. They give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, that they have just come from the sheriff who auctioned off their sins and now they're sorry that they can't get them back again. But Jesus, in his resurrection, secures joy for those who believe in him. And here's the implication. Jesus says that I will see you again and no one will take your joy from you. In Jesus, your joy will be full. In Jesus, your joy will be full. And no one can ever, ever take it from you. That is a remarkable promise. And we need to pause and consider what it means. What is joy? Joy is happiness, gladness, and pleasure. That's what the word joy means. And when Jesus says that his resurrection secures for us happiness, gladness, pleasure, joy, we have to probe how that's the case because some of us experience that in a regular and ongoing basis and we're nodding our heads and saying, yep, I I know that to be true in my life. And yet some of us are thinking, well, I believe in Jesus and yet I'm not so sure I'm experiencing the ongoing joy that you're talking about here. And I don't want to miss out on the promise. And so let let me make three observations about this claim for joy. We could make a lot more, but let's just make three this morning. 
The first one is this. Joy in Jesus displays his supremacy and his worth. Joy in Jesus displays his supremacy and his worth. Because Jesus is the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most valuable, because Jesus is the one that we aspire to be like, because he puts forward his life as an example of the perfect human, it stands to reason then that our greatest joy would be found in the one who is the most valuable. Your greatest joy happens in the thing that is the most valuable. But here's the temptation. (laughs) I'm tempted every single day to pursue lesser forms of joy, of happiness, of gladness, of pleasure. And in doing so, what we reveal is we reveal what we trust. We reveal what we worship even over Jesus. All of us are prone to believe the lies of temporary satisfaction and we think that it will lead to lasting joy. And again and again and again we find ourselves finding out that this is never actually producing what it promises to produce in us. It's, it's sort of like the child who 30 minutes before dinner four times a week, asks for candy. They're hungry. It's almost time for dinner. And if they were to have the candy, of course it would provide them with some temporary satisfaction and the sugar rush would mask their desire for the nutrients, the real nutrients that they need, and they'll get to the dinner table and they won't feel hungry for something better. At least not right away. But they will, at 7 p.m. when the table is cleared, they will be left wanting. And so it is is our search for joy. We pine for the temporary pleasures that mask our hunger for something more profound and substantial. But if you've ever experienced the nearness of Jesus, if you've ever felt his love, if you've ever had grace and forgiveness wash over you and feel the release of the bondage of sin and the freedom that God provides for you, if you've ever walked through life day after day, week after week, maybe even moving into month after month with a quiet and secure confidence and hope and optimism, no matter what the circumstances are around you, because you know God is near then you know, if you've ever experienced any of those things, then you know that this gladness and pleasure and joy supersedes all of the temporary joys of life. It's a greater type of joy than the excitement of buying something new. It's a greater joy than the pleasure of sex. It's a greater joy than the allure of power. It's a greater joy than the opportunity that money provides. It's a greater joy than the thrill of making a birdie on the 18th hole. It's a greater joy than the excitement of your next vacation. When you truly experience joy in Jesus, 
you display in your life what is most valuable. And when you have what is most valuable, you experience the greatest type of joy. And so don't trade it. (laughs) Don't trade it for candy because it's not worth it. The second observation about joy is that joy is something that you need to pursue and it's something that's worth fighting for. That as much as joy is a gift from God to us, that it is secured by Jesus in the resurrection when we see him again and no one can ever take it away, that it is still something that we need to pursue and something that's worth fighting for. We know that what we pursue in this life shows what we believe. Where you find your joy displays who or what your God is. If you find joy in things, it displays what you believe to be the most valuable. But if you recognize that Jesus is the most valuable, then you display what you believe by pursuing him in joy. Not just waiting for the joy that he gives, but you're pursuing him because he is the most valuable. We've said that joy is happiness, it's gladness, it's pleasure. Joy is not merely an emotion that happens to you. You have a choice in the matter of your joy. It's something that you can foster. It's not just a temporary emotional bliss. And if this is true, then joy needs to be willful and active, not simply passive and obligatory. This summer, Amy and I will celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. And if I went to her and said to her, Amy, I want to take you away for a few days to celebrate our wedding anniversary. Surprise, we're going to the beach for a couple days. Don't worry about the kids. Somebody else is going to take them. I want to spend just a handful of days with just me and you, and I want to celebrate you and what God has given us over the last 20 years. And she says, oh, Nick, what a great gift. How could you possibly do such a thing? Right? (laughs) And I pause and I think about it for a minute. And I say, well, it's my obligation to do such a thing. I mean, this is what husbands do after 20 years. And if you're going to be a husband, you need to celebrate 20 years. It's my duty. How does she feel in that moment? What does it communicate to her? Well, it communicates obligation and duty. But it doesn't communicate love. It doesn't communicate cherishing. It doesn't communicate worth. And it doesn't communicate value. And so, of course, she says, Oh, Nick, what a great gift. I'm so happy. How could you do such a thing? And my response is, It's because I love you. It's because you are so precious to me. It's because I want to do this for you. It's because I long to spend this time with you. And I hope that God will give us 20 more years together by his grace. And what does that communicate to her? 
It communicates love and value and worth and joy. (laughs) When Christians simply go about their Christian life with a form of obligation or duty, when you come to church out of religious obligation without a desire to cherish Jesus and to hear from his word and to soak in his love and to rest in his promises, then something is lacking. And joy typically is not what follows. (laughs) But if you rest in this religious obligation, know that it gives you no joy. While relational pursuit leads to lasting joy. And joy is worth pursuing because Jesus is worth pursuing. He's worth pursuing and joy is worth fighting for. But to do that, what does it mean to pursue Jesus in your life, in your life that is crammed full of busy things to do and crammed full of entertainment options and crammed full of another TV show that you've yet to watch? To pursue Jesus means that you need to spend time drawing near to him. That if your life is filled with just your many agendas and your Christianity is tacked on as an addendum or something on the side as mere obligation, you'll never experience joy. Do you ever wonder how you can be a generally moral person and not have joy in following Jesus? That's how. Because you don't recognize his value, his worth. You don't take the time, the space to think upon his excellencies. To consider his awesome power. Not religious obligation. You're pursuing him. Because he's the most valuable. You're creating space to ponder him. Because he is the most inspiring. And when you do that, Joy is what follows. G.K. Chesterton once said, the modern world has had far too little understanding of the art of keeping young. Its notion of progress has been to pile one thing on top of another, on top of another, without caring if each thing was crushed in turn. People forgot that the human soul can enjoy a thing most when there's time to think about it and to be thankful for it. And by crowding things together, they lost their sense of surprise. And surprise is the secret of joy. In the busyness of life, when was the last time that you just took time to ponder the things of God? And maybe even be surprised by God and experience joy. It's worth pursuing because Jesus is worth pursuing. The third observation about joy this morning is that the aim of Christian ministry is the joy of Christians. 
that the aim of Christian ministry is the joy of Christians. Jesus says that no one will take your joy from you. In verse 24, he reminds them that when they ask in his name, that their joy will be full as he gives it to them. Asking in the name of Jesus means that you rely on Jesus to provide you with what you need and what you want. This is the fifth time Jesus told his followers to ask in his name, to depend upon him by asking in his name, to seek their needs through him, to find their satisfaction for life in him, to ask God to fulfill their dreams through him. And this time he tells them that it results in joy. And it reminds us that the aim of gathering together as Christians is to spur one another on toward dependence in Jesus. And as we spur one another on in dependence of Jesus, in doing so, we fight together for joy. 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 24, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. (laughs) Apostles and Christians working for joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, convinced of this, Paul writes, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul writes to the churches again and again that part of the goal of this ministry is not just that you know about God. It's not just that you know God. It's that you find your greatest joy in Jesus because that's the only place it can be found. And it's a progression that happens. And so when you come to sing together with Christians on Sunday, we redirect each other's focus off the materialism of the world and we remind each other of the joy that we have in Jesus. And when I preach, I seek to move our gaze from my personal thoughts and feelings and desires, some of which are good, many of which are bad, and to redirect them to the majesty of the risen Christ who's worthy of pursuit And when we pursue him, we receive joy. And when you go to your growth group on Wednesday night or Thursday night or Sunday night or any other night, you contribute to the conversation with the people in that group around the word of God and you are fostering their affections for the things of God and that leads to joy. And when you serve the Lord Jesus in any variety of capacities, maybe with students or in children's ministry in the back or at the youth group with middle school or back here with high school, you are again and again helping them to fight against the lies of the world which would entrap them with candy and you are seeking to give them a vision of a much greater joy that they can only have in Jesus. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's how powerful this joy is, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I hope that you're a joy-filled Christian. I want you to be a joy-filled, pleasure-driven, happy 
Christian who finds satisfaction in the Lord Jesus because you taste and you know and you feel the things of God. And I want you to realize that you don't have to keep filling up the space in your life with all kinds of spiritual candy that mask your hunger for real joy. God has given so many good things to enjoy, but at the center of all of that, at the core of your identity of who you are, is the daily confidence that you can have, and it's rooted in the joy that Jesus secures at the resurrection. In Jesus, your joy will be full. Nowhere else. In Jesus, it'll be full. And no one can ever, ever take it away from you if that's where your joy is rooted. What a promise. There's a lot more we could say about that. A lot more observations we could make about the nature of joy in this life. And a lot more, certainly, that we can make about this text. We're brushing up against it. But I want to leave you with one concluding thought. It's a lingering question that some of us will inevitably have. We think to ourselves, okay, Nick, I understand that because Jesus is the most valuable, if I find my satisfaction in him, then I'll have the greatest type of joy. And I understand that Jesus secures that joy for us in the resurrection. And I understand that this type of joy is something that I need to pursue, I need to contend for, I need to fight for, because there's constantly temptations around me that will lead me to a lesser form of happiness. But I have a hard time feeling this. I have a hard time feeling it. Is there a promise for me when my husband has cancer or I'm persecuted at school? Or is there a promise for me in this because I feel all alone? And Jesus is leaving. His disciples will remain. They will experience isolation and sorrow and weeping and they will feel like all hope is lost. And he reminds them and he reminds you that even in the most dire of circumstances, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In Jesus, your joy will be full. Even in the worst of circumstances. And no one can ever, ever take that away from you. Consider the story of one young man. He was often sick as a baby. He was always small and puny as a child. As a youth, he was frail and delicate. He was not able to play with the other boys his age. Eventually, as he grew older, he became a Christian. He put his faith in Jesus. His perspective on the world began to change. And even though his life was hanging in the balance because of his physical frailty, he decided to enter the ministry. But his health was so fragile, he found that he was unable to serve his growing congregation. 
And amazingly, he did not dwell on his troubles. In fact, his spirit soared. His only real complaint of the day was nothing to do with himself, but it was having to do with the music that was being played in churches. He thought the hymns were of such poor quality that they did not convey hope and they did not convey joy. The joy that he was experiencing as a follower of Jesus. And so someone challenged him to write some better ones. And he did. In fact, he wrote over 600 hymns. And most of them hymns of praise. And when his health finally collapsed completely in 1748, he left one of the most remarkable collections of hymns the world has ever known. His name was Isaac Watts. And this sickly man with the troubles of the world left a legacy of joy. Many of the hymns of Isaac Watts you may have known. O oh God, our help in ages past, when I survey the wonderful cross, and of course, the most famous of them all, joy to the world. Isaac Watts discovered that joy in his life was centered on Jesus. He knew that God would never desert him. He was able in all sorts of problems of health to maintain focus and direction because he knew that God was close. He had joy deep in his heart. And in one of his most widely distributed hymns, it's not very well known today, he sings of this joy. It's called, Come We That Love the Lord. And he says this, Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. And thus surround the throne. In Jesus, your joy will be full. And no one can ever, ever take that away from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you point us to the most valuable and as a result, give us the highest type of joy. God, help us today and every day to fight against the temptation to embrace lesser forms of happiness that are not ultimately fulfilling. Father, give us a renewed satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. Help us to find our greatest hope in Him. Help us to find our greatest love in Him. Help us to find our greatest joy in Him. Continue to align our affections to this end, we pray. And allow us to experience gladness and pleasure and confidence and hope with him at the center. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.